ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ with minister Chris Palmer. Bernie Church of Christ meets for worship each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. You can find Bernie Church of Christ at 1 Upper Balconies Road, right next to Starbucks. Now, with today's message, here's Minister Chris Palmer. Thank y'all for being here this morning. Hope y'all are having a good day. If you're a guest or a visitor, we're so glad that you're here this morning. Maybe you've never been uh, part of our congregation before. Thank you for being here. We want to welcome you. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the ministers here, and I uh, hope I get a chance to meet you afterwards. If you've never been to church before, maybe it's been a long time, I'm glad you're here this morning, and I hope that you're blessed uh, by your time with us. I want to share uh, a short excerpt from a book that I've been uh, trying to get into lately. It's, it's, not, it's not a big book. It's, it's barely 100 pages. It should be a pretty quick read, except that I have to keep reading and rereading uh, different sections of it to try to wrap my mind around what the author is saying. His words and ideas, they're, they're honest, they're deep, they're insightful, and admittedly, they're on a subject that I personally have very little experience with, and so I'm trying to be the best listener that I can be. The book is Jesus and the Disinherited. It's by Howard Thurman. It was first published in 1949. Let me share the opening paragraph with you. Thurman writes, Many and varied are the interpretations dealing with the teachings and the life of Jesus of Nazareth, but few of these interpretations deal with what the teachings and the life of Jesus have to say to those who stand at a moment in human history with their backs against the wall. He will go on to explain that it's often the strong, those who are in power, who get to dictate the narrative and define the application regarding the faith and the religion around Jesus Christ. But then what you, end up, what you end up being left with is a whole mass of people who are unrepresented, neglected, and in his word, disinherited. Their collective back is against the wall, and their options are very, very few. There is this temptation to create Jesus in our own image, or in the image that matches our modern ideas of power and success. Painting Jesus to be strong and mighty and cool and a winner, when in reality, the true Jesus of the gospel could relate much more intimately with those who were poor and outcast and powerless. Jesus came from a people who knew exactly what it meant to have their backs against the wall. Even the very town that Jesus came from had a dirty reputation. John 1, 46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet, when we read the good news story of Jesus, what we see over and over is a man who has a message that the disinherited were desperate to hear. Jesus shone a beautiful light that wasn't about promoting oneself to a higher position, but that was most importantly that God loves us all in a way that the world cannot express. It was a message that has drawn people to Christ for thousands of years, people who have experienced firsthand the unfair and inconsistent love that the world offers. Whereas the gospel 
says that though you may be looked down upon for whatever reason, though you may be disregarded, disrespected, devalued, and disqualified, you are beloved by the God who created you, and he would do everything in his power to be with you. That's a powerful message. One that instills and inspires hope and joy. It overpowers the darkness, the the hate and the evil of the world. And it carries us into a light where the goal is not to enhance ourselves, but rather to lose ourselves. And the community of the church lives by these core values. That life was created to be in relationship with this loving God. That Jesus makes this relationship possible and personal. And one of, if not the most important ways that we can participate in that relationship is by loving the others that God has put around us. Everyone needs this. It is not exclusive. It's not an accessory. It's not optional. This is the most universal truth about humanity. We need God, and he made the choice to come and get us. And I wonder, do we ever make it more complicated than that? Do we ever make it more complicated than that? There's this scene at the beginning of the book of Acts that's always kind of made me laugh a little bit. It's like the first five minutes of the church. Jesus has been crucified, resurrected. He is visited with some of his people. And then it says that he ascended into the clouds and his disciples could see him no more. He is gone. And now they have to figure out what are we going to do next? So what do they do? It says that they just keep standing there, staring into the sky. They don't know what else to do until two guys who are dressed in white robes appear and essentially ask them, what are you doing? What are you looking at? It takes two angelic figures to come and tell them you can't just keep watching the sky. Jesus is not coming back today. You gotta go do something. I mean, for the first time ever, the followers of Jesus have to go and figure out how to do it without him. Yes, they are guided by the Holy Spirit. They are led by Jesus' teachings and his example. They have the support of one another. These are all crucial tools in their toolbox, but they are going forward on a mission into new, wild, and uncharted territory. So what are you going to do now? I will never forget my first day of ministry. I'd gone to school for years, I had studied and practiced, I'd read a ton of books, I'd, I'd written a ton of papers. I'd even ha- uh, held a few jobs in some various ministries, but this was my first day in full-time, as a full-time minister. I walked into the Graham Street Church of Christ in Stephenville, Texas. The secretary, Margaret, greeted me, she gave me some keys and showed me to my office. She asked, is there anything that you need? And I said, no ma'am. She left, I sat down at my desk, and for the first time ever, it hit me. I have no idea what to do now. And no idea what to do. This was it. This was the moment that I'd been preparing and training for, and here I was. What do I do? 
Nobody had left an agenda. There was no to-do list. There was no orientation. There wasn't even a calendar. Just some keys, a pat on the back. Now go do it. And I imagine to a much larger degree than this is what the disciples must have been feeling. Where do we start? What do we do? That's a crazy position for them to be in. But you know, they do a pretty good job. They make it work. They do the best that they can. They stick together. They are driven by their love for Jesus. And their faith in him takes them on some crazy adventures. There are some huge risks involved. It's just like Jesus warned them. The world is not going to like them. The world will not accept them. The world will hunt them. But not everybody. Not everybody. There's a lot of people who are starving for the message of Jesus. The gospel light was spreading. It was like a light on a hill. People were seeing it, and they were asking, how do I join? How can I be a part of this? The disciples knew what they had seen in Jesus and what they had received from him, and they were willing to risk it all to tell the world about Christ. Again, they are being led by the Holy Spirit. They have Jesus' example guiding them. But that doesn't mean that there aren't challenging situations that arise. There are things that they've never seen before, questions that they've never considered even asking. Remember, they did not have the New Testament scriptures to lead them. They're living it. They're learning on the job. And one of the most difficult and divisive debates for the early church was this. What do we do with the Gentiles? You see, Jesus was Jewish, and so were his apostles. There was this deep, rich Jewish faith and heritage that surrounded Jesus. Jesus often quoted the Old Testament scriptures. That's not what they called it, but that's what we know it as. And Jesus even said himself, Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What do you do with that? So the apostles are stuck with this question about the Gentiles, everyone who wasn't Jewish. Could they be Christians? And, and if they could, do they need to practice Judaism in order to be saved? Now, we may not wrestle with that question today, but thank goodness they did back then. Otherwise, our faith might look very different right now. That's a big deal. Who is allowed? And what qualifies you to be accepted into the church of Jesus? So you ended up with this group of some very opinionated folks called Judaizers. They believed that Gentiles could join. They could join. They could be Christians, but they had to follow the law of Moses. They still had to observe all of that in order to be a Christian. And of course, a major part of that obedience was the practice of circumcision. And the Judaizers were adamant that this had to be done. And it created a very strong polarization in the church. Now, again, from our modern perspective, we may not understand why would that be so divisive. But for them, they saw this as a very slippery slope. It was a compromising in their values, their beliefs, their practices, their heritage. If we loosen up on this, we'll be diluting the message. We're going to lose touch with the truth. And then we run the risk of being just like everybody else in the world. Which all brings us to a guy named Peter. You're listening to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. The Bernie Church of Christ is located at 1 Upper Balcones Road, right next to Starbucks. 
you can join the Bernie Church of Christ for online or in-person worship each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Now, with the rest of today's message, here's Minister Chris Palmer. We've been talking about Peter for several weeks now. He's come a long way from where we first met him fishing that day. He is now, of course, a respected leader in the early church. He is one of the main guys who's trying to figure it all out, trying to do it right, and he's learning on the job. And he seems to keep finding himself right in the middle of this big debate. The message has already been preached in a variety of languages on the day of Pentecost by Peter. Jacob preached about that last week. In Acts 10, Peter has this incredible vision, and he hears the voice of Jesus tell him, Acts 10, 15, what God has made clean, do not call common. Now, Peter's very confused at first about what this vision and what this message means until some messengers come to him from a Roman centurion named Cornelius, and he's asking for Peter. Peter goes with him, he meets with Cornelius, and Cornelius says, God told me that you had something to tell me. So we're all here now. Go ahead. What's your message? And Peter says, chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, I truly, or truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then Peter doesn't do or say anything real fancy next. He just tells them the story of Jesus. And it says that while he is speaking, the Holy Spirit came on them, and the people who were watching, verse 45, were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And Peter says, verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have. Peter reports back to the church everything that had happened, and there is, of course, some fuss from these Judaizers. But Peter tells them the whole story, and he ends with this. He says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I? that I could stand in God's way. Verse 18, and when they heard this, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So there you have it. The The matter is settled, right? Wrong. Wrong. You might think that the matter is settled because God has so clearly shown his approval on people who were not clean by standards of the Mosaic Law. But there's still a group that's saying, it's not enough. I need to see more. In fact, even Peter continues to struggle with this. Through, uh, though it may seem that his struggle is less about the doctrine and the practice and more about kind of the social aspect. He's stuck in the middle. It seems like he's trying to play the role of the guy who just wants to keep everybody happy. Paul writes about this in Galatians chapter 2, when he once opposed Peter to his face in front of a whole group. He says, if you, though a Jew, this is what Paul says to Peter, if you, though a Jew, 
live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, and yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also we have believed in Christ Jesus. In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is saying that it's not our works that save us. The law does not save us. Only Christ can save us. And you know, Peter doesn't even practice the law very well himself, he says. So how can you expect others to? It sounds a lot like when Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. Don't make others work hard for a grace that you received for free. So the debate comes to a point where they figure the best course of action is to just get all the major players together in one room, and we're going to have it out. Let's make a decision. Because the message that some are still saying, Acts chapter 15, verse 1, is unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They see this as a salvation level issue. And so everybody meets up together in Jerusalem. And it must have been quite a sight. I mean, this is, really is a who's who of the early church. Paul and Barnabas, the apostles, elders, Judaizers, even some Pharisees, all the big names in the early church gather together in this Jerusalem council. And they go back and forth, around and around. But we've all been a part of those kind of conversations before, right? Nobody's saying anything new. We're not really getting anywhere. No one's backing down from their position. And in very unusual Peter fashion, he just sits there in silence. Usually, Peter is the bold and the brash type. He's the first one to speak up. He gets out of the boat. He pulls out his sword. But he's growing, and he's maturing, and he's leading. He waits patiently, and he lets everyone else say their piece. Until finally, he stands up and he speaks. Acts 15, verse 7. Peter says, Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice. God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentile, of Gentiles a yoke that neither our ancestors, neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we have been saved, just as they are. It says that then everyone fell silent for a little while. That is, until other people spoke up and started arguing again. But, but what did Peter say here? First, he says, God made a choice. God made a choice. 
that the Gentiles would be presented with the gospel. Why tell them about Jesus if they weren't allowed to respond to it? God's will is that the message of Jesus is for everybody. He chose that. He didn't have to, but he did. He chose us. And then Peter said that God knows the heart. Well, whose heart is he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles who have come to believe. He says God knows their heart. God knows their authenticity. He knows that they truly believe, that they truly desire to be with him. So first, God chose them, and then they chose God. It's done. Why test God's choice by making it more difficult for people to come to him? That's it. End of story. God chose them, and they chose him, and their hearts have been purified by faith. And Peter says, we believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we have been saved just as they are. And I wonder, do we ever make it more complicated than that? Am I guilty? Have I ever put a yoke, a burden, an expectation on someone, some extra hoop that they should have to jump through to somehow prove themselves to be worthy of grace. I know that I've done it to myself. I know I've done it to myself. So I've probably done it to somebody else. Someone who desperately was trying to get to Jesus, and I somehow made it harder than it had to be. But as Peter said, who am I to stand in God's way? There are people all around us everywhere who one way or another have their backs against the wall. There's no hope, no choice. And the world does this to people. It strips them of their power, of their self-worth, of their humanity. That's not Jesus' way. Jesus sets people free free from sin, free from hopelessness, free from despair. And he gives people a new and a better value and purpose. And this morning, if you don't live in that freedom already, I want to tell you that it's there. It is readily available to everyone. There are no extra hoops, no stipulations, no prerequisites. We all come to Jesus equally messy. But his grace is equally powerful, no matter who you've been or what you've done. You are beloved, and he chose you, and he wants to set you free from whatever wall you are backed up against. And this morning, if you already live in that freedom, then I want to remind you that you have a choice to make. Will you, as Peter did, speak up? Will the words on your lips and the song in your heart be that Jesus' grace has saved the world? That Jesus' grace is enough? That we are all broken and we are all loved? That we have all fallen short and we have all been redeemed? My prayer for us is that sometime this week, each one of us will run into somebody who needs to hear that, and that we'll speak up, 
that we will be his voice of hope and love and grace. And I wonder, how will the world be a brighter place when all of the people of Jesus are singing his song of freedom? Thank you for listening to the radio ministry of the Bernie Church of Christ. You can join the Bernie Church of Christ here on Bernie Radio each Sunday at 11 a.m. or for worship online or in person each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. To learn more about the Bernie Church of Christ, please visit BernieChurchOfChrist.org or call 830-249-2685. That is 830-249-2685. Thank you once again for listening to the Bernie Church of Christ.